This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Father, today we confess our need for your Holy Spirit. Pray that as we open your word, as we look at history, that you'll guide our minds. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so we see the, the, the experience of Luther. And um, Greek controversy, it says that that text never lost its power upon his soul. From that time, he saw more clearly than ever before the fallacy of trusting to human works for salvation and the necessity of constant faith in the merits of Christ. His eyes had been opened and were never again to be closed to the delusions of the papacy. When he turned his face from Rome, he had turned away also in heart. And from that time, the separation grew wider until it severed all connection with the papal church. <clears throat> so, Luther's approach to the scripture completely changed as a result of his sola gratia experience, as his... As his um, the perception of salvation and the character of God changed, so did his approach to the Bible. Now, um, <clears throat> the uh, Council of Trent would um, also say, if anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else but confident in the divine mercy, confidence in the divine mercy which remits sins for Christ's sake, well, this confidence alone is that whereby we are justified, let him be anathema. So as, as Luther is, as, is preaching this message of the just shall live by faith, the the church is going the opposite direction and actually cursing those who would have that perspective. <clears throat> now, let's skip down. I want us to, to move on down to the... Uh, oh, boy. I'm going to have to skip a bunch here. Um, let's, look at the, let's look at the Reformation hermeneutics real quickly here. <clears throat> a passage should be first understood in its literal or obvious simple meaning. Now, I, I read something like that from the Great Controversy this is from the Reformers. This is from the Protestant Reformation. This is the way they viewed Scripture. And um, they uh, argued that against the other methods, the popular methods we described earlier of interpretation. The text should be studied in its context by means of the historical, historical grammatical method, which takes into consideration the condition of the times and the people to whom the Scriptures were first written. Um, <clears throat> this, this means that, as I was um, uh, one question I had over the, over the break was, you know, does this, taking the scripture literally mean that, you know, women should keep silence in the churches, for example? That's what the Bible literally says, right? The Protestants did not end just with saying that this is, the scripture should be taken literal, but it should be studied in context. Context not only of the passage, but of the times it's written in. Understanding the history, understanding the language of the Bible, understanding the context in which it's written. And so... <clears throat> The Hebrew and Greek texts of the Old Testament should be consulted if there's a question of uh, the actual meaning. Scripture is used to interpret Scripture, the canonical Scriptures being a self-sufficient authority in religious matters. The Christocentric rule, which makes Christ the focal point of the Bible, is to be applied. And actually, when we talk about the Christocentric principle, um, it, it, it may be... Luther had a very different view of the, what, what he would call the Christocentric principle... Um, when we say Christocentric principle, we would say that all of Scripture really points to Christ. We can find Christ as the theme, the overarching theme of the Scriptures, right? Um, Luther would say it a little differently. Luther would say whatever Scripture does not 
point to Christ or uh, lead us to Christ is not, uh, is not valid scripture in, this, in essence. That's Luther's Christ-centric principle. And so he writes this famously in his, in his introduction to the epistle of James in his translation of the Bible. And in his opinion, James didn't, tran- didn't, uh, didn't really point us to Christ. It was a works-oriented epistle. And so um, Luther, Luther sort of rejected certain portions of the Bible where he couldn't see Christ being pointed out. And um, he, he developed what you might consider a canon within the canon. Those passages were books that were most valuable and those that were less valuable. And uh, we, don't, we don't accept that. In fact, um, I don't think most Protestants would. Um, but that was his, his point of view. And you have to understand, he's growing and uh, it's amazing what paradigm shifted in his mind in one lifetime. Um, so we can understand the difficulty he might have faced. Understanding the correct relationship between the law and gospel <clears throat> and the threefold usage of the law is basic to the interpretation of the scriptures. Um, furthermore, the interpreter should be illuminated by the Holy Spirit and a personal sola fide and sola gratia experience. When we look to post-Reformation times, there came a change and um, this, some of this change, we have to go very quickly through some of this, but <clears throat> there was a period of dogmatism. As the Reformers died, creeds were established, right? And um, it means they were dogmatic. You know, they became very entrenched. This is what we believe, and we're not changing. Um, Lutherism wasn't going to change from what Luther believed when he died. And so the, the religion sort of froze. Calvinism sort of froze. And um, they didn't continue growing as the men themselves during their lifetime had done. There became doctrinal controversy between the Protestants. Usually these doctrinal controversies were not what we would consider major issues today, perhaps. There are issues over things like, you know, the observance of the Lord's Supper, the Mass. Um, um, Not the Masses in the Catholic Mass. They all rejected that. But, um, you know, how do you define the wafer? Is it... um, is it uh, Christ symbolically or allegorically? I mean, these were sort of like theological hair-splitting, but they divided Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. And um, they, they, of course, were commonly united against Catholic beliefs, but they were led to begin the confession of faith or creeds. And people were asked to agree to statements of faith that sort of froze their faith where, where, where it became. Um, the Bible became an arsenal of proof, proof texts, and the result was sort of a scholasticism, um, which, uh, which sort of did away with the religion of the Bible. It just became an intellectual exercise, you understand, and um, over, overrode the spirit of the gospel. In reaction to the scholasticism came a movement we know as pietism. And pietism, really as Adventists, we have, we have a lot that we can sort of resonate with pietists. Um, <clears throat> they would begin in Germany in the, in the 17th century, and they sought to renew a living faith from a rigid and legalistic orthodoxy. In other words, they, they wanted a personal experience with God. They wanted a living, vibrant relationship with God, not just some intellectual creed, some set of doctrines. And pietists generally did not attack the orthodox, orthodoxy, the, the, the set of beliefs, but their emphasis on the personal experience of conversion and practical works of piety was a kind of dogmatism in, its, in itself. Um, they were in danger of abandoning doctrinal teaching for simply this sort of uh, maybe a lifestyle type um, uh, religion. And, um, you know, many of them did amazingly uh, wonderful things. Um, you, you have a direct line of 
of faith from some of the early pietists down through you know, George Mueller and others that, that really exemplify a, a lot of good Christianity. You know? um, <clears throat> in Germany, um, they, the, the pietists built orphanages, they built schools, they had publishing houses, they had health work. They, as you look at some of the pietists and what they were doing, some of them were actually, they had a full spectrum ministry like Adventists are, are, are given today. I mean, health, Bible, education, um, just, just this a wonderful balance. But there were some dangers in this. Um, the doctrines related to conversion took on greater significance to the pietists, and this hierarchical arrangement of Christian doctrines um, was at variance with the Protestant um, creeds and so forth, which viewed all doctrines as equal. And um, the pietists approached their study of the Scriptures from an ethical and devotional point of view. Do you understand, you understand what, what that means? As your, as your worldview changes to become more about what my experience is with Jesus, then I'm looking at the Bible less from what it teaches doctrinally or um, propositionally and more from what it has a, a very devotional, almost, could we say, a, an emotional or, um, uh, I don't know the right word to say, um, <clears throat> spiritual for sure, but not necessarily as literal as the Protestants prior to them had viewed the Word of God. And... Um, the weaknesses, what the, the doctrinal structure of the church would be weakened, and two, that the uh, interpretation of the, 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 the literal meaning of the Bible would be obscured by the allegorical excesses, and that the practical religious life rather than the Word of God would become the authority and determining force. There was also the challenge that took place among pietism. <clears throat> it tended to almost dissolve church structure. Um, there were several experiments with small groups that landed rather disastrously in Germany because um, they, they sort of did away with the, 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 uh, the collective meeting together um, and they got out of hand and um, churches basically sort of disappeared. And when the small groups died, the churches were gone. They weren't coming to church anymore and it just didn't, didn't work out very well. Um, and some of those early experiments. Now, <clears throat> um, after pietism, I don't know that it's so much in response to pietism as it's also in response to the dogmatism of the Reformation. You have the um, rise of rationalism. And this sort of rejects creeds and traditions of any form and looks once again at the scriptures from a reason point of view. And um, in Christianity, it meant rejection of sola scriptura, and affirmation of individual spiritual independence anchored in reason as the norm of religious faith. So we're not going to spend a lot of time to try to go through all of these, this history of, of rationalism, but in the middle of rationalism comes a new revival, and that's the revival of John Wesley. It's probably the closest to, it's probably the closest to Adventism. A, we, we have a lot, not just from the early Methodists who became Adventists, but simply from our worldview with an Adventism, we have a lot in common with Wesley and, and his teachings, um, particularly later in his life. <clears throat> Wesley was largely impacted later in his life by the Pietists, by the Moravians and others who essentially were, were Pietists and descendants of the Pietists. And so um, there's, there's interesting lines of 
that you can see student through student to student, student became teacher of others, and there's a whole generation from the time of the early German pietists until the time of Wesley. Um, direct connection, only about four generations. And um, um, Wesley was not doing away with the creeds or doing away with the literal teaching of the Word of God, but he was sort of putting them both together. This idea of a spiritual experience, yes, emphasis on conversion, but at the same time, a reading of the scriptures to bring about an understanding of propositional truth. And so this became a, a, um, a revival of the sola scriptura principle particularly. And um, of course, you've talked about the hermeneutical spiral, right? And the emphasis upon sanctification, bringing the life into harmony with the word of God, had the unexpected, maybe, effect of greater and greater understanding of the scriptures. As people brought their life in obedience to the Word of God, they began to understand the Word of God in a better and better way. And so, <clears throat> this, was, this was, of course, the environment in which Adventism was born. At the same time, we have, on the other hand, 19th century liberal, pro- 19th century liberal Protestantism. We already talked some about Frederick Schleiermacher in our first seminar together, our first um, time, those of you who are here. We talked about how he began this notion of um, encounter inspiration, which radically altered the approach to the Bible. And um, it really just gave reason and um, scientific criticism of the Scriptures the upper hand. Now, um, when we get on down to uh, liberal Protestantism, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but you have, you have the, uh, the uh, competing views which became deism and pantheism. Deism says God's gone. He's really nowhere to be found. He's an impersonal God. Pantheism says pretty much the opposite. God's everywhere. He's in everything. And, um, and so these are, these are two of the, two of the uh, extremes, you might say, which we get from liberal Protestantism. Then we come to the Advent movement. <clears throat> and um, the Advent movement was a movement of Bible prophecy. Of course, it required the study of the scriptures and study of the spirit of prof- uh, the, the, the books of prophecy. And um, the early Adventists came from a very small group. As you know, most of the Millerites, after the Great Disappointment, they sort of left camp, right? They just abandoned the whole idea. And they went back. Most of them would drift away from historicism altogether and, and begin interpreting the prophecies with a futurist or a preterist worldview. <coughs> but the, there was about 50 about 50, stayed by and kept studying and became the early Adventists. Not a very big group at all. And um, they began studying the sanctuary understanding to, um, to conclude that there was a sanctuary in heaven that was referred to in Daniel 8.14. And the church began to take a direction of its own. Um, we'll talk very briefly here about the three schools of thought. We don't have time to spend much time on it right now. But preterism is the belief of the major portion of the book of Revelation and of course the book of Daniel, was fulfilled a long time ago, shortly after the time of Christ, maybe the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, a little, early, little later into the apostolic age, but basically it's all already been fulfilled. The Antichrist is Antiochus Epiphanes, back before the time of Christ, who, the, the Greek king who offered pigs upon the altar in Jerusalem, the abomination, desolation, and so forth. Historicism, with the belief that the events of Revelation have been fulfilling all through, with some past, some present, and some future fulfillment taking place. Basically, the easiest way to think of it, historicism says the prophecy began with the time of the prophet, 
and extends down to the time of the end, we can find ourselves somewhere in the middle. We can find ourselves in that stream, that continuum of time, an unbroken continuum of time. And certainly, I believe um, historicism is the preferred method of interpretation. If we look at Daniel chapter 2, that's what's taught, right? Um, and so we could spend a lot more time on that. But futurism <laughs> is the belief that what is predicted from Revelation 4 onward is yet to take place just before the end of time. But we don't have any continuum in which we're in. There's some sort of a catalyst that's going to start the prophecies again. We're living in a gap um, where, where there's, uh, there's, a, there's really no revel- relevant prophecies for us. The Antichrist is yet to come. Maybe it's the rapture or some other event that's going to start these prophecies, depending on which futurist you talk to. Um, <clears throat> Futurism originated with Ribera, the Spanish Jesuit, Jesuit, who in 1590 published a commentary on Revelation. In the 19th century, it took root among Protestants and today dominates the Protestant scene with, that is most vocal about prophecy. Many Protestants don't believe in futurism, but the ones that don't, talk, that don't believe in futurism don't talk much about prophecy. Um, that's just the reality. They don't talk much about the Bible at all in many cases. They would tend to have a more um, encounter, probably, worldview of revelation, inspiration. And the Bible isn't that... In, I shouldn't say it's not that important to them. Um, they don't see it as being that relevant to our daily life when it comes to the prophecies, particularly. So, um, <clears throat> William Miller, as I mentioned, belonged to the historicist school of thought. And um, he did not in- invent historicism. He simply continued the tradition of the Reformation. And uh, I think it's important for us to understand. Um, we're not going to take the time to go through Miller's 14... Um, hermeneutics, 14 principles of prophetic interpretation. Um, we, we could spend a whole seminar just on prophetic interpretation. But he basically had 14 principles that he laid out as the cardinal rules for which prophecy is to be interpreted. And um, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the hermeneutics that he, he stood by. And um, some of the Adventists have continued to to follow this tradition of prophetic interpretation. <clears throat> now I'm going, to, I'm going to pause right now, and we're going to take a few minutes to actually look at some Bible passages. And I want to give you some examples, because this is something that I've sort of struggled with in my own uh, study. We're not talking today primarily about how to um, study the Bible. We're talking about how to interpret the Bible, right? Studying the Bible is more tomorrow. But um, in my own interpretation, my own preaching... I would study, I've at times been challenged to, uh, to evaluate and uh, to see what methods I'm using because it's, it's not too hard to, to uh, slip into an allegorical interpretation. Excuse me. So let's look at a Bible passage. <clears throat> and um, I want to talk with you about a sermon that I preached many times um, and uh, it's based in Second Kings, chapter five. Second <clears throat> Kings, chapter five, and I'm just hopefully we can make this a short case study. What time are we dealing with here? What program? Okay, so 
We need some time for questions and answers and prayers, so we've got about 15 minutes. <coughs> Excuse me. Second Kings chapter 5. <clears throat> The Bible says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a what? The leper. Now, I was reading early pioneer, early Millerite literature, actually, and I, I saw an allusion to this story as an illustration of the plan of salvation. And I came back to the story and I began reading it. <clears throat> and I began seeing so many parallels. So many things that could illustrate the plan of salvation. Now, we're lepers too, aren't we? I mean, doesn't Isaiah chapter 1 <clears throat> tell us the whole head is faint, the whole body is sick from the bottom of the heels to the top of the head? There's no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. Pretty, uh, not a very pretty picture of, of us, right? Sin is like leprosy. And you can draw all kinds of parallels. I mean, what does leprosy do? It destroys your nerves, right? It destroys your, your faculty to feel. And sin destroys happiness, right? Sin destroys peace. Sin destroys joy. Sin destroys our ability to perceive the Holy Spirit. I mean, sin is spiritual leprosy, right? And um, it's bad. It's fatal. Sin is fatal. Too often we don't see sin as fatal. Um, the advantage that Naaman had that some uh, of us lepers don't have is that Naaman knew he was sick. If you don't know you're sick, you don't, find, you don't seek for healing, Right? And so, if you look at this story, you'll find that Naaman recognized that he was sick. In fact, I would point out the fact that, that Ellen White says in, in Desire of Ages that, that the Lord can do nothing toward the recovery of man until stripped of his own, um, still convinced of his own weakness, and stripped of all self-sufficiency, he yields himself to the working of the Holy Spirit in his heart. Then he can receive the gift that heaven is waiting to bestow. From the soul that feels his need, nothing is withheld. Powerful promise. So we need, to know, we need to first know our condition, right? Now, the Bible says that the Syrians had gone out by companies and brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. Now, here you have a young lady who's forcefully taken out of her home. Probably her family may, be, may have even been killed, home destroyed. But she has a heart for people, a love for people, right? A love for souls. And she says, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one of them told his Lord, saying, This is what the maid said. It's from Israel. And so the king of Syria said, Go and I'll send you <clears throat> all this, these gifts, 10,000 talents of silver and six thousand pieces of, roll, of, of gold and ten changes of raiment. And so, along goes Naaman to the king of Israel, right? And when, when he arrives at Samaria to see the king of Israel, what is the reaction of the king of Israel? 
my God, does he think that I'm God, that I can save him? Am I God? No. Um, the reality is there was a God in Israel, right? The little maid knew that. The little maid was witnessing, sharing her faith, because she believed there was a God in Israel. And because she was witnessing, someone was sent to the church and the church wasn't ready. Right? And uh, the king of Israel tears his garments and knows that there's, this must just be a ploy and that, you know, that doom is soon to follow. Well, Elijah hears about it. Elisha hears about it. And um, he says, send him to me. So we pick up the story in verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. I like to get that word, that verbal picture firmly in my imagination. Can you see Eli- uh, Naaman in front of the house of Elisha? Um, I don't suppose that Elisha lived in some grandiose mansion. I rather imagine Elisha, Elisha living in a very humble home. They didn't have trailer homes then, but you know it was probably the, uh, the, the parsonage. It was a humble home. And um, Naaman was an important man, right? And so he's standing there with all of his entourage. In today's world, it would be with his bodyguard and limousine. He pulls up to this humble home. And he stands there and waits for the humble Elisha to come out. Now, most of the time, you would expect, <clears throat> you would expect someone from a humble background like Elisha to be rather thrilled that someone with all the you know, black SUVs and everything pulled up in front of your house and was coming to see you. Um, I remember when um, back, this, was, this is going to date me a bit, but I remember back during the end of the Cold War when Gorbachev was the premier of Russia and, uh, and uh, he made his first visit to the United States. I think it was his first visit. It was a visit to the United States. And um, Donald Trump was uh, just a real estate developer back then, but he invited Gorbachev to come visit him. He sent him an official invitation while he was at the UN or something. And um, they had a, someone found a, a Gorbachev look-alike. And they put makeup on his head for a little birthmark, you know, and everything. And um, hired a limousine and pulled up in front of Trump Plaza. And uh, Donald came bounding out beside himself with, with uh, joy that, you know, the premier of Russia had accept his invitation to come visit him, only to realize that it was a ruse and a joke. Um, But when someone important shows up outside of your house, you're going to pay attention, right? I mean, from a that's what you would expect. So the Bible says in verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times. Thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. No. You see this mental picture of of, of Naaman, the important man, standing in front of Elisha's house. And Elisha doesn't even bother to come out himself. In front of the humble home of Elisha, the humble prophet Elisha, he sends an even humbler servant. The servant of the humble prophet who lives in the humble home, right? Gets sent out to tell Naaman what to do. And it's not what Naaman expected. Go wash the river seven times. The Jordan River. Seven times. You'll be clean. Notice what Naaman's reaction was. Naaman was wroth. That's another way of saying angry, right? Naaman was angry. Verse 11. And he said, Behold, I thought, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. You see, 
Naaman had expectations, right? He expected to be saved from his lepers in a certain way. <clears throat> and might I add, the way in which Naaman expected to be saved from his leprosy was a dignified way. It was a way in which he could keep his pride. It was a way in which he could keep his false self-importance. He could keep his dignity, you might say. And too often we want to deal with the, the sin problem in our lives. But we want to do it in a way that doesn't humble ourselves. And when God answers our prayer to heal us of our leprosy, how does God separate us from sin? It's usually through trials. The Bible refers to it as the refiner's fire, right? It's humbling. It's painful. It's even sometimes humiliating. And our reaction is, oh, look, I just wanted to go to church and be well-respected and have be dignified and keep my, keep my pride. And sometimes we, like, we react like Naaman reacts. We fail to, we fail to, we fail to uh, recognize there's only one way to be cleansed of leprosy. Now, the, the solution that God gave to Naaman, was it complicated? Was it even difficult? No. Would have been available to anyone. Um, but he, it didn't suit his own Ideas. And so he says, verse 12, <clears throat> Are not Abana and Farpar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? And having turned away from the only one way that God has provided for us to be saved from sin, we generally look to alternative cures. Alternative medicines. There's a lot of them out there. A lot of them out there. Some of them say, well, I'm just going to pretend I'm okay and I'll be okay. Some say the leprosy of sin is actually normal. Don't worry about it. God's just going to somehow change us miraculously someday. Some of those alternative cures are works-based. Maybe I should just have my devotions more. I'm not against having devotions. But the things we do should be the result of our surrender to Jesus, our wanting to approach Jesus, not the cause of our salvation. We, don't, we can't save ourselves by doing any of those good things. And yet the world is full of even Christians and even Adventists who are looking for Abna and Farpar because they're more dignified ways to be saved. In reality, there's only one way of salvation, right? One way of salvation. His servants came near, verse 13 says, and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee to do some great thing, wouldest thou not have done it? How much rather then when he said to thee, Wash and be clean? Naaman thought about that and he realized he brought all this money, right? Would he have been willing to give all the silver and all the gold and all the changes of clothes that he brought, the wardrobes, in order to be cleansed? Why? You earned it, right? And if you earn it, you can still be proud. You don't have to humble yourself. 
I'll just give big offerings. That's another alternative medicine, right? Maybe I'll just become a missionary. I'll make sacrifices. Now, I believe in taking up our cross and following Jesus. Don't get me wrong. But it's not so that he'll save us. It's because he saved us. Right? As Naaman thinks about this, he realizes he would have done something. And um, So the Bible says in verse 14, beautiful verse, he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. His flesh came again under the flesh of, uh, uh, like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. The good news is that God has never lost a patient. No matter how bad our leprosy of sin is, he can make us like little children again. He can heal us. Now, <clears throat> I've very quickly gone through this story, okay? And this is a sermon which I've preached on numerous occasions. I, I preach it actually quite differently most of the time because I'm preaching it with proof texts. But I want you to just evaluate how I went through this passage. What do you think? Was this a literal reading of the Scripture? Or was this an allegorical reading of the Scripture? <clears throat> When I began studying more of hermeneutical history and correct hermeneutics, I began to realize that I had not even made a clear distinction in some of my own sermons, in my own study. What is illiteral and what's allegorical? Now, I don't think there's anything that I said as I went through that passage that you disagreed with as far as it not being truth, right? The, in fact, I think... Probably, if I were to preach this sermon, most Adventists would be compellingly convinced that this was a beautiful sermon. And they'd never seen Naaman like that before. And in fact, this, this allegorical reading of the Bible really tends to attract our imagination. It really grabs us. It really does. But the problem is, that I can just as easily teach error through an allegorical interpretation as I can teach the truth through an allegorical interpretation. I, could, I, could, I, have, I have chosen the story of Naaman as an illustration of the plan of salvation. Right? Is there anything in the scripture that points to Naaman as a type? I mean, I guess it does say, and Jesus said there were many, many lepers and... Elisha's day, but only one of them was healed. So, I mean, I guess in some ways you might imagine that. But it's not very clearly a type or a, a, um, uh, some sort of a parable that we can, we, can, we can see as a prophecy to be applied on our life or sometime in the future. There's nothing in inspiration that does that. So I am personally making that an interpretation of this passage. Um, <clears throat> the, the, the issue is not whether I can preach the story of Naaman. The issue is how I preach the story of Naaman. What is the literal meaning of the story of Naaman? What is the literal reading? What's that? God tells you something to do it. Okay, that's a lesson we would learn. From the literal reading is this is a historical fact, right? This is something that took place. That's the reading of the story. It's a literal thing that took place. There are lots of principles that we can elucidate from it, right? The witnessing principle we can see that this was something that's admirable in this woman's, in this girl's life, right? Now, I want to just, I want to just, um, I want to just propose to you that the only difference between an allegorical reading of Naaman's story 
and a, an, a could be an appropriate use of name and story would be if I chose to prove the propositions I was speaking from other texts in the scripture and use the story of Naaman to illustrate it rather than as I pretty much did through this short reading, I used the story of Naaman to try to show how we're saved. Do you see the difference? Everything I said about salvation, about pride, about works, can be shown from the Word of God elsewhere. The correct preaching of this sermon would be to show those truths as I go along from verses that actually say what I'm trying to say. Are you with me? Now, if I'm doing that, I'm using the story of Naaman the same way I might use any other illustration in a sermon. Why do we use illustrations in a sermon? We use stories from current events, we use stories from from ancient history, and we use Bible stories, we use all kinds of personal experiences as illustrations of truth. Why is it? It makes a point, it drives the point home. It gives human interest to the stories, right? To the, to the truths we're teaching. It keeps the attention of the hearers. There's lots of different ways in which illustrations are very valuable. Are you with me? So I can use the story of Naaman as an illustration of divine truth, which I am proving, not from the story of Naaman, from, from, from places where the Bible is actually teaching what I'm trying to teach. But for me to take the story of Naaman and try to use it as an allegory to prove this is how people are saved is taking a liberty and a license with the scriptures that I'm not actually authorized to take. Are you with me? Does that make sense? And so as I began to evaluate my own preaching, I began to recognize that I need to be careful. Not because people... I wasn't teaching error. You understand? I wasn't trying to go out and teach people that they should you know, do anything crazy or not live in harmony with the Word of God or anything else. What I recognized was, in my preaching, I needed to be giving an example of proper biblical interpretation. Because someone else can come along and find the story of Naaman or the story of any other part of the Bible and come up with an allegorical interpretation and choose this means this and this means that and this means something else. And it, wow, it all fits. I never saw that before. Of course it all fits. It was all, it was all something that was imagined. And you can always find, by the way, something else could fit too there. You understand what I'm saying? There's no authority in that interpretation of the Bible. I really consider this to be a private interpretation. When I take a passage of the Bible and I allegorize it and I use it to, to, to try to prove biblical truth, it's really, it's really simply my reading. Okay? So, that's just a very brief illustration, but I hope you can sort of see the difference between using the Bible story as an illustration of truth, which you prove, through texts that actually say, as Ellen White would say in Great Controversy, before accepting any doctrine or precept, we must demand a plain, thus saith the Lord, in its support, right? And uh, the Bible would say it, if they speak not according to this word, because there's no light, and then precept must be upon precept, line upon line, here little and there little, right? We actually want to see the Bible saying what we're trying to say. Not simply telling people what we think the Bible means. Okay? If we're teaching doctrinal truth. And so, 
I think if we, if we look back in history and we see the presuppositions that have influenced and affected biblical interpretation over time, we can see that there's often a pendulum, a little bit of an action reaction. And sometimes we, um, we, um, we, we look back at some of those things that they did in interpretation. We, think, we, we sort of think they're laughable. Um, but sometimes I think we actually do the same. I mean, I actually have done the same thing myself. And um, I've, I've been attracted to that method of Bible study. It's very appealing to the intellect, very appealing to even to the pride to, to try to come up with these stories. And, and you know, uh, please don't go out of here and start critiquing pastors. Please don't go out of here and start condemning other people. I have many, uh, many, many, um, many who I believe to be honest, sincere, godly men of God, my colleagues perhaps, who sometimes use, and I sometimes use, um, techniques that I probably need to grow in, right? So um, please, don't, please don't use this as a, as a way of trying to criticize other people, but use it as a tool for your own understanding. And recognize it. Recognize it. Because I really think that it can be used just as easily by the devil. And I've seen it. There are among us, there are among us teachers who I believe are teaching blatant falsehood using the allegorical method. Using a, using a false, uh, 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 an understanding of inspiration that, that's not what I see as an understanding of inspiration. Um, and so, um, you know, I, one, one prominent minister, not, not an Adventist employed by the church, but a, a preacher, I should say, um, much of his ministry is just using these Bible stories as prophecies of what's going to be in the time. And I'm alarmed by some of it. And I think some of it has led him to teach, teach what I believe is, is error now at this point. And, um, and I think that's, that's the danger if we don't recognize these methodologies. Questions? <clears throat> we have a microphone here, and so I'm going to need to ask you, is there a roving we could use too, maybe? Does that one work? Okay. Um, It's the recording that's the issue. So, okay, can do that. Now I'll stand by on the podium, and they'll use. Yes. Okay, we'll see how our. Technology does, okay. of course. Okay. Uh, my, just a quick question. Um, when it comes to like parables by Jesus specifically, it's almost is it kind of like reverse in the sense that we are to like cause he, when he teaches a parable, it's from a he teaches a story almost from a, to to gain a principle or an idea or a teaching. Although we're not supposed to take it literally, like you know when we're because they may not be necessarily symbols employed all the time. And some parables, some parables are just straightforward, but they're still parables, which means that I'm asking, like, how do we interpret those based on, is it the same that we, is it the same, do we interpret it the same way, literally, point by point, or do we take the teaching that Jesus is trying to, and how do we get to that teaching then, because some person could make their own, um, I've actually seen this myself, people who have taken actually parables of Jesus and created, they've almost done allegory with Jesus' parables, which are true, but Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think I understand what you're asking. Um, 
the interpretation of parables could be a whole discussion on its own. The 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 the, the main thing to remember when, when we talk about parables, I think, is that parables are usually intended to illustrate rather limited truths. So there's a there's a specific point that the parable is trying to make, maybe one or two, you know, um, and so. To try to build a whole castle of different teachings on that one parable is probably stretching what Jesus was trying to mean. So when we take, let's take the parable or allegorical expression of the rich man and Lazarus, for example. And if we took that literally, we would have some problems. You know, um, the point that Jesus was trying to make was that the rich, the worthy, poor are not, um, are just as equal in value to God as the, as the rich. You know, riches don't mean you're going to heaven. Um, the point he was trying to make was if, if they have Moses and the prophets and they don't believe them, they won't believe though one could come from the dead. And he was about to do that. They still wouldn't believe. Right? So those are the main points of the parable. But if we try to use that parable to show where we go when we die and we all are going to land up in, in Abraham's lap, it's going to be pretty crowded. You know? Um, that's, not where, that's not where he was trying to go with the parable. So just how do we be careful even when, for example, there are parables that don't have type of, when you take it literally, there aren't symbols that are... So obvious. Like yeah, there aren't symbols that are like the tongues the and the speaking right. back and forth, but something, for example, like the Pharisee and the publican, or the rich, um, the, the, the prodigal son, for example. Those are some things that are... Just very simple, but and, and true, and they're not like if you take it literally. There's nothing. The principles then that would apply to interpreting per, uh, parables um, are the principles that would apply to the rest of Scripture too. So at least you start there. You know, look at the context, look at the um, look at the what the rest of Scripture has to say on a topic, and um, and so then you begin to see what the Bible could not be teaching, right? Um, from from the from the parables, you have, for example, you have, and I don't mean to pick on any theological persuasion here. There's um, there's there's a lot of good in the law and in various viewpoints, but um, you have some who will argue the point that there's nothing we do in our salvation, right? God does everything; we have no part to play. And they're going to they will tell you that if you look at the parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep, what did they do? Right. Um, my only point is we'll also look at the parable of the lost son. See, look at the rest of Scripture before you try to take a parable and teach something from it that maybe wasn't intended. Look at the rest of the context and look at the rest of Scripture. So it's in, that's important. And I wish we had more time to talk about. We could spend a whole five or ten minutes probably talking about the different principles for interpreting parables, but. They're essentially similar to what the rest of the scripture is. I also have another question. Um, this one has to do with prophecy. Uh-huh. Uh, um, how do we, um, as Adventists, you know, when we measure prophecy compared to the mainstream Christian church, obviously there's a big difference in how we see Daniel 2 Revelation. How do we, you know, like, you know, we take things very literally, you know, we look into the symbols, measure it, do the, the whole thing. How do we. Um, how do we? I, I guess how, how would you how would you tell a normal Christian they ask like, oh, what makes your prophecy different from us? Because you know, I don't know if that kind of answers the point if that makes sense. But 
well, because Christians don't really, their version of prophecy is very different from how Adventism see it. We think about, you know, Daniel 2, the, you know, how the earth is going to be restored, the 100,000 remnant. There's a lot of differences. Like, how would you say that? Because they would say, well, that's, you know, when they say the remnant church, I was like, well, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a group of people that believe in God, but as Adventists, we believe we are. How do you kind of, you know, untangle some of these misunderstandings? Right. Well, there's a saying... <clears throat> which may be applicable here. It says something along the lines of Rome wasn't built in a day. And you probably don't entangle all of those differences between us and the rest of the Christian world, whatever their persuasions are, in just one short conversation, right? So where I would start, I wouldn't start in the book of Revelation. I wouldn't start arguing about the remnant or talking about the mark of the beast or the seal of God necessarily. Um, I would start where the Bible starts with Daniel chapter 2. I really believe Daniel chapter 2 is the primer for us to understand how Bible prophecy works. So <clears throat> you're going to need to, if you want to study with someone and with the, with the end in mind of showing them an Adventist understanding of prophecy, you have to start at the beginning. It's going to be, you have to use a systematic set of Bible studies on prophecy um, unless you're comfortable enough teaching it on your own without studies. Um, a whole study on Daniel chapter 2, right? Let me move on through the book of Daniel. And what you're doing is you're building principles. Unfortunately, <clears throat> many Christians, they begin reading with um, the book of Revelation without really determining or observing what the principles of interpretation were in the book of Daniel. So I think as an Adventist, and I've given many Bible studies on prophecy, I think as an Adventist, most people actually, even a lot of Christians, who have some ideas about the rapture and Antichrist and all these other things, they're still blown away when you study with them Daniel 2. I mean, it's not as, it's not as common knowledge as you might think. Um, and so begin with those elementary lessons in prophecy. And you start to learn, you start to teach. The Bible interprets its own symbols, right? The vision goes from the time of the prophet down until all the way to the time of the end. Are there, are there examples in the book of Daniel of multiple interpretations of the prophecies. Did Daniel tell the king, Thou art this head of gold, but in 2011 the head of gold is also going to represent uh, um, atheism. Um, no. The metal represented a kingdom. There's one interpretation. Okay? So when we study prophecy, we recognize a, a historicist interpretation, and we could spend a lot of time to, on this. I... Um, um, I gave a seminar last week, last year at GYC, but the recording failed, and so it's not available on the interpretation of prophecy. But the, um, the historicist Adventist perspective of prophecy is that there's one interpretation. Even if there's multiple applications, like history repeats itself, events occur once again that occurred in the past, there's only one interpretation. The head of gold only meant, only meant Babylon. Okay? The seven trumpets meant the seven trumpets. Um, we, don't, we don't come back and look at the whole passage again with a new, completely new principle of interpretation and make it something that it wasn't. Yes? There's those who uh, sincerely believe that uh, we should still be keeping the feast days uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, I, it seems like that falls into the verbal uh, interpretation of Scripture. I don't know if it falls into one of the other camps. And using what you presented today, what would 
be perhaps a summary of your approach to talking to them about their system of interpretation? Well, um, <clears throat> there are a number of different issues that surround the, the question of the feast days. And so um, from this perspective of biblical interpretation, um, I have at times um, taken the liberty to point out the uh, poor hermeneutical practices that are at times used. Um, <clears throat> not always, but, but often. Some leaps in logic. Um, and certainly it does usually come from a very verbal inspiration point of view. I'll give you an illustration. I very recently read an article um, on a blog um, was forwarded to me um, about the feast days. And essentially, <clears throat> it quoted a couple passages by Jones and Wagner um, where they equate the Mosaic law with the law of God. Okay, you know, this brings up the whole Long Galatians controversy of 1888. We don't have time to get into all that. But um, this, the author basically said, Jones and Wagner saw the Mosaic law was not done away with because it's the law of God. So therefore, um, Jones and Wagner, although they probably didn't even realize it, they were arguing the feast days. And they used some of these uh, spirit of prophecy statements affirming Jones and Wagner then. And then they have Ellen White teaching the feast days. You see? And um, <clears throat> I'll give you another illustration, a similar, a similar thing. Before Y2K, there was a group of conservative Adventists that were predicting the end of the world, basically, at the year 2000. And the way they were predicting this was verbal inspiration. They, were, they found a passage in the, in the Great Controversy where there was a, um, a scene pictured, and Ellen White's describing, I think it's a Great Controversy, it may not have been Great Controversy, but it, Ellen White describes the time of trouble. And as the, the righteous are fleeing from the wicked and the wicked are pursuing the, the, the righteous, the expression on the lips of the wicked are, is... The new millennium is upon us. There you have it. Proof. Y2K is going to come during the time of trouble. So Jesus is going to come. I mean, there are some that are predicting Sunday law in March of 1999, et cetera, et cetera. They had it all figured out with the tax, the collection of land taxes, and we couldn't lose our property and still grow our land for the three and a half years or whatever, you know, had it all figured out. The point is they were trying to say that Ellen White made a prophecy she didn't even know about. Right? And this is very common in the feast day camp. Ellen White did not believe the feast days. She didn't keep the feast days. But they use statements where she uses a phrase. And they say, see, God was teaching this even though Ellen White wasn't quite there yet. She hadn't grown to that understanding. Well, that is completely verbal inspiration. If the prophet didn't understand it at all, they had to have simply been a mindless penman not conveying their own thoughts with their own words that God had given them, but conveying verbatim God's, God's words. And that's where the whole allegorical interpretation comes in, too, because, because now, now the prophets never understood. The, the, whoever wrote Second Kings wasn't teaching the plan of salvation, right? But they didn't know. You see? It's verbal inspiration. It's really the basis behind this. And so when, when we look at the feast days, we have to look at a number of, a number of, of issues. Um, 
um, we look at the biblical arguments that they use, and we evaluate whether um, the, the, the word seasons, for example, um, which is, uh, what is it, Moed or something along those lines that they, they base a lot of their argument on, that they say began all the way back in, in Genesis, the first few chapters. Um, we look at the fact that biblical evidence isn't quite as simple as they try to make it be. That this word does not always mean feast days. Um, it's, it's very clear. Um, we look at the fact that the, um, the expression that this shall be forever is also used in other areas where we know it's not forever. It's until it's finished, until it's completed. Um, we look at for example, the prediction Jeremiah says that Babylon would come and light a fire in Jerusalem that would that would burn forever. But we know Babylon's not still or Jerusalem's not still burning, right? It means it's going to burn till it's burned up. Um, if we if we say firemen come to put out a fire and they couldn't put it out, we don't believe from that that it's still burning, right? We just believe that it burned until it was consumed everything. And so um, this is the same argument you have to make when you talk about the smoke of the torment ascended up forever and ever and so forth, you know, um, the state of the dead in the King James Bible. Um, so this is a, this is a um, you, you look at those same biblical examples, the servant that does not want to leave on the year of Jubilee, he was to go and the, the owner was to put his uh, all through his ear, right? Pierced ears are a symbol of slavery, essentially. And... Um, um, God's people were to be freemen, not bondmen. Um, so that's a whole other issue, isn't it? But um, he was put the ear, the pierced the ear through the law, and he was to serve his master forever. Um, over and over, we can, so, we can see the illustrations of that same word being used in the Old Testament. And so to use that, to say that it's to be used in perpetuity, is, is a weak argument. Then we look at, we look at the actual uh, um, commandment to keep the feast days. It's very interesting... <clears throat> The emphasis on modern feast day keeping is on, um, is on the timing of the feasts. The emphasis of the biblical record is more on the location of the feasts. And I can give you the reference, but Moses was perplexed because there was a group of the Jewish men that were gone. And they weren't able to be at the tabernacle during the Passover, I believe it was. And he asked God for guidance. And God said, look, if they miss the Passover, keep it the next month. What does that tell us? The location was more important than the date. They couldn't just keep it where they were. They had to come back to the temple and they had to keep it at the location where it was specified that it should be kept. It's very disingenuous for us today to try to say we're keeping the feast days. When we're keeping only a portion of it that we've chosen. There's no biblical rubric for understanding how we could keep the feast days, for example, without the sacrifices. I know we say the sacrifices is what were done away at the cross. But in the instruction of the Old Testament, there's no way for us to really see that the feast days could be kept without the sacrifices. And certainly without the location. So if we're going to keep the feast days, as Paul would say, we're debtor to do the whole law. Okay? Um... We could look at Ellen White's statements on, in, the, in the matter. Um, I responded to this article that was forwarded to me about the, uh, 1888 actually was a rejection of the feast days. That was, that was the, the essence of the article. Um, and, you know, I, I showed how <clears throat> I simply went through, and it didn't take very long, because on the CD-ROM we have all the pioneers' writings, right? 
And so I just simply searched through a number of keywords, and I looked at everything Jones and Wagner had to say on the, on the feast days and the ceremonial law and so forth. And I found black and white explicit statements where they spoke against the keeping of the feast days, and they said they'd been done away with forever. They were no longer binding. They used even sarcasm against some of the critics of, of, of the Adventist view of Colossians 2, you know, um, very strong statements they made. And yet in the article, the author had said, well, Jones and Ragnar really didn't know that they were teaching feast days. And in fact, they never said anything against the feast days. Well, the reality is people just don't read. They just take this and they accept it as face value. And, and they don't look at what Jones and Ragnar actually did say about the feast days. And there's, there's, there's some pretty black and white statements made. And so, I mean, I'd be happy to share with you if you have. I have a short paper, about 15 pages or so, written on the feast days. Um, and uh, I have, I could even send you the response I made to this, um, to this uh, blog, if you, if you like. But um, the, obviously it is hermeneutics, isn't it? It's interpretive principles, and it's good scholarship that we're searching for. And um, I've learned something. <clears throat> Um, be cautious when you see any one major principle of hermeneutics being violated. Um, the truth doesn't need those type of methods. It may be truth. It's possible. But um, it's, it's definitely not the right way to teach the truth. And so when I see things like, I knew Jones and Wagner had spoken specifically to the feast days. So when I read that, I was like, that's, that's just a lie. Either someone hasn't done their research, which is easy to do in about an hour, or they're just being deceptive. But um, it's just not true. So um, I don't know if that helps, but um, that's part of the feast issue. Yes. Good. Let's, can we get the microphone over there for the recording, I think? <clears throat> and then we need to um, just spend a little, a little time in prayer. I think we have about 10 minutes left. Um, a question. Uh, what are some books you recommend reading about this topic? Like, can you get an ABC store? Yeah. Um, or anything written, like, I don't know, anything practical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we're going to be talking more about uh, methods of Bible study tomorrow. Um, but I'll give you information, because if you have the plans for tomorrow, you may not be coming here. Um, in essence, I would recommend that you read the Bible. And the best commentary on the Bible I have found is the Conflict of Ages series, which is Patriarchs and Prophets, Prophets and Kings, Desire of Ages, Acts of the Apostles, and Great Controversy. Five books. And the advantage of this is, it's not because I just want you to read Ellen White, okay? I, I don't want you just to say, oh, I'm going to read the Bible by, or understand the Bible by reading Ellen White. What you can do is, in those five books, the beginning of every chapter, there is a Bible passage. And it says, this chapter is based on Matthew 17 through 19. So then, as you're reading through the Bible, which I'd recommend you do, uh, because if you haven't read the Bible from cover to cover before, that's where you start. Just just start reading. It may seem boring at first, but um, maybe when you get to, well, before you get to Revelation, it'll start. It'll start picking up. I promise. Never met anyone who didn't have that experience. Usually it's somewhere around Joshua or Judges or Ruth or somewhere around there. Samuels? Somewhere around there. I'm telling you, it's just like something clicks. And all of a sudden, the Bible starts to, to be interesting. And I've seen it happen over and over again. But my point is this. You read it with the Conflict of Ages series. And after you read the Bible, you go and read um, what it's, it's um, 
It gives you some of the historical setting. You understand? You know, if you read, um, if you read, what is it? Is it 10 pages morning and 10 pages in the evening? You'll read the Conflict of Ages series through in a year. I believe so. It's 6,000 pages, 300 days, 20 pages a day. Yeah, that's about right. <clears throat> I'm sorry? Well, there, there will always be questions. It will answer many questions which will, which will inspire more questions. And that's the beauty of studying the Bible. Is you keep learning and keep learning and keep learning. And just when you thought you, there's only one thing left to learn, you find ten more. And I don't know anything about the Bible. So, yeah. Um, the, the Word of God is infinite. So we keep, I think throughout eternity, we're going to keep understanding more and more about God. The nice thing is that in eternity, we're going to have a personal tutor. We can always ask God himself um, what he means or how he, how he did it. So, um, Thank you for coming. Let's have a word of prayer. And then I want to just actually we won't I won't pray for you. Let's just divide into groups of two or three and pray that as we leave here, that we'll be better students of the word of God. Pray for this conference and um, pray for our message, our mission to the world has been brought up. There's many people who don't see the Bible as we see it. And we need tactful and compelling ways to be able to reach people and to teach them. Remember, if you don't teach them at the, the basic principles, you're going to spend your time futilely arguing the the details so let's go ahead and, and divide if you just want to divide into group of two or three and have a quick prayer we have about about 10 minutes left this message was recorded by fountain view productions for gyc gyc a supporting ministry of the seventh day adventist church seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant bible-based and christ-centered christians to download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.